Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1 and going through chapter 9, verse 5. And if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, one of the black pew Bibles in front, uh, it's going to be in page 967. Second Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he would complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about the generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since the last year. 
and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we just thank you for another chance to sit underneath your word, faithfully proclaimed. And as we hear your word, I pray that we would have hearts that are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that as Pastor Toby comes and proclaims your word, that you would give him boldness and courage to speak your word as you have intended, God. And we pray all these things for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I begin, let me remind you of the three things we always do on the first Sunday of the month. We always come to the Lord's table. We always give a benevolence offering on our way out of the service, so that will happen today. And we always have a prayer meeting at 7 o'clock on Sunday evening. And I would urge you, there are many days that you go through your Sunday afternoon and you're like, do I really want to get off of this couch and get back into the car and go back over to the building and to pray again? Uh, But I'm just talking about myself, all right? There are many times we just think, wow, I mean, it's just hard to just get yourself going at times. But I will tell you that no matter how you walk into the prayer meeting on Sunday evening, you will not walk out thinking, why did I come here? Because it is a joy and a blessing to pray together. And so I urge you to come tonight at 7 o'clock and be here. The other thing that I wanted to clarify before we begin is that I'd like your money. Whatever's in your wallet, I'll take it. I'm hoping that as a result of today's sermon, you will give more to me. Now, none of that's true, but this, but this can sometimes be the way that people hear sermons on giving. And basically, this guy's just out for our money. That's what he wants. Great sermons on giving cause people to squirm. They cause people to feel quite guilty, honestly. And the reason is because giving is an area of the Christian life where many people struggle. There is a war for how you will think about and give and use what God has entrusted to you. It's not a struggle like, it's not like a dangerous mugger pouncing on you, this idea of giving, you know, sermons on giving. It's the, the, the notion that you ought to hang on to your money and that you ought not to think about giving and everything's fine and the really, really rich people can give but not me, that whole struggle is not like a mugger pouncing you. It's like a con man who comes in and he sweet talks you and he lures you in and he has you thinking what he wants you to think and he takes you in the direction he wants to take you. That is what the devil would gladly do with us. 
regarding the things that God has entrusted to us. This is why Paul says that in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is not evil. But loving it will bear all kinds of evil fruit in our lives. It will bear idolatry. It will bear unbelief. It will bear self-reliance. It will bear the exploitation of other people. It will do all of these things. So Paul tells Timothy to make sure and warn the rich folks in his congregation that they shouldn't set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, that's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? If you and I set our hope on riches, if we trust in the money that God has given to us, it seems awfully foolish to give it away, doesn't it? It seems ridiculous to give it to somebody else. If this is my hope that's in my wallet, why would I ever give it away? Why would I ever let you have any of it? But if our trust is in God, who provides all things, we're enabled to give. But giving can be a struggle, can't it? Have you ever known giving to be a struggle in your life? Does it just come naturally to you? This money just falls out of your wallet. I'm not talking about to like bills and people who, you know. I'm talking about just, does money just go everywhere? I'm just, I don't even, I don't want this dollar. Money, giving is a struggle. Giving is a struggle. And yet the Bible is clear that God's people are giving people. In the Old Testament, God's people gave in order to support those who led them in their spiritual lives. The Levites. In the New Testament, giving in part supports those who minister among us. But also in the Bible, giving is meant to meet the needs of those who are struggling financially to meet the needs of the poor, to clothe them, to shelter them. Isn't it interesting that as Luke tells the story of the church in Acts, on a couple of different occasions, he zooms in on the generosity of the church. And so he says in Acts 4, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, if you don't read the rest and you just read there was not a needy person among them, you might think the church is for the rich folk. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying there were plenty of needs, but because people sold their properties and their houses and they brought it to the apostles to be distributed, there was nobody in need. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a church where there's nobody in need? Can you imagine a people so generous that people would walk into here and say, well, there's not a needy person among them. I mean, the moment a need springs up, it's taken care of. It's done. So generous that they're selling land and houses to meet others' needs. Can you imagine a church where rather than folks seeking to try to get a second house, they're trying to get rid of a second house so they can give. They're trying to get rid of the mortgage so they can give. Can you imagine a church in which people don't want more and more for themselves? 
but they want to give more and more to others. This is the kind of church that Luke is describing. God's people are giving people, and it's this concern for the poor that sets the context for what we just read. Now, there's great poverty going on in Jerusalem. There's a famine. Uh, there's double taxation. There's, all, there's being an outcast because you're a Christian. There are a number of things contributing to the socioeconomic uh, poverty of the Christians in Jerusalem. They're just broke. And so, in Acts 11, the church in Antioch says, we got to do something about this. So they charge Paul and Barnabas to go and start collecting money from all these churches uh, in Asia and everywhere else to take to the people in Jerusalem to help relieve the need. And so this is near and dear to Paul's heart. I mean, Paul's mission is focused on preaching the gospel and establishing healthy churches. And yet, he will not do it to, at the expense of, not, of, of this other project. The, the, the relief for the poor in Jerusalem is near and dear to his heart. It's what he tells the apostles when he first meets them. It's what he tells the Romans. He says, well, I would love to come and see you, but I really have to take care of something first. I have to go to Jerusalem because the people in these other regions have given so that the, that the poor may be relieved. And Paul, in this part of his letter, is call, as, as he's calling the Corinthians back to himself and back to the true gospel, he's calling them back to this giving project. But notice, as he does it, he doesn't do it by pounding away at his apostolic authority. He even says, I don't say this by way of command. He's trying to persuade them to do what is right. He's trying to persuade them of this truth. God's people must be generous givers. God's people must be generous givers. And that thread runs right through this whole text. But the Corinthians aren't the only ones that need to hear that, are they? Isn't this something that we find we need to hear over and over again? The necessity of the fact that what I've been given by God is not ultimately and finally for me. It's for His glory and for the good of others. So let's see what Paul says about generous giving. First of all, he says generous giving is an act of grace. Did you notice that? Did you notice how many times grace came up? How, how many times... In just run-of-the-mill sermons on giving, does grace come up? I mean, left to ourselves, we just be like, well, you have to do this. you got to do this. It's the law, man. Well, Paul says, not, exceed in, not excel in your obedience to the law. He says, excel in this act of grace. Giving is an act of grace. The word is used seven times in some form, just in this text alone. So he says in verses 6 and 7, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, typically, when, we, when Christians talk about Grace, we are talking about 
God's grace, His favor, His benevolence, His generosity toward us, His, it's unconditional and unprompted and undeserved. So the Bible tells us that it's by His grace that we are saved in Ephesians 2.8. So nothing prompts God to save us. There's nothing in us that leverages God. There's no condition we've met. We can't twist God's arm into saving us. He saves us of His own volition, based on His benevolence, His generosity, His grace. But also the New Testament speaks about God's grace as a power that enables us and trains us so that Titus 2 says that the grace of God has come, uh, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldliness. So grace is actually an active power. And so that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul can say, I worked harder than anyone, but it was not I, wasn't my power, but the grace of God in me. That was the power of my service. So, as we think about that, as we think about Paul calling the church to generous giving as an act of grace, think about what that might mean. First, what it means is that generous giving is empowered by God's grace. Generous giving is empowered by God's grace. I mean, look at verse 1 in chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And then what does he go on to describe? Their generosity. This is what Paul does not say. Look at their generosity and then describe it. He says, look at the grace of God, which shows itself in their generosity. But not only is generous giving empowered by God's grace, it has the same character as God's grace. It's unprompted. It's uncoerced. It's unconditional. It's undeserved. It's born out of the heart of the one giving and not the merit of the one receiving. Listen to this. The moment that giving is forced or we believe the recipients deserve generosity, it is no longer generosity. It is compelled upon us either by an external force or by our understanding of the merits of the one receiving. This is not generosity. This is why he says in chapter 9, verse 5, he says, I'm sending these guys on ahead to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction, not as something you're forced to do. Not, it's not a tax on the Christian to give. When the plate passes, we're not paying Christian taxes. All right? We're giving. When you walk out today and there are men there collecting for benevolence, we will either give generously or we will feel like, I cannot walk by this plate without putting something in it, so I'm going to put something in it. 
That's not generous giving. Even if you empty your wallet into the thing. It's an act of grace. It is generosity. Plenty of people give, but only Christians can give as an act of grace because only we know what grace is. What is your giving like? If you, if you put something in the plate today, why? If you gave online, why? Have you ever thought about that there's a way to give online? There's a way to give in the offering plate with, and it's completely unrelated to grace whatsoever? Surely there are some we know who believe that giving and giving a lot can earn and merit favor with God. This is wrong. But the much more popularized way to giving, it seems, is when my giving is based on the preaching performance of the pastor. Whether my approval of a certain set of programs, how I feel about how things are going is going to determine how much I give to the Lord. Do you hear how weird that, that, that sounds? We're not talking about giving to someone who's clearly not, you know, a, a church where the gospel is completely compromised and thrown, you know, thrown in the trash. You ought not to be in such a place. We're talking about the American Idol version of giving. We're talking about the voice. We're talking about America's greatest talent form of giving. I wasn't moved as much today, so... It sounds silly when you say it out loud, doesn't it? When my giving is aimed at honoring God, when my giving is an unprompted act of seeking to help the poor, it's an act of grace. It's empowered by God's grace. It has the same character as God's grace. Giving is an act of grace. Secondly, Paul tells us that generous giving needs encouragement. Now, wait a second. If God's grace empowers generous giving, and I can't make myself more generous, I mean, shouldn't that just happen automatically? Why would it ever need to be encouraged? Won't it just happen? I mean, if I have God's grace, won't it just happen? Well, we probably need encouragement the same way that we as husbands need encouragement to love our wives as Christ loved the church. The same way that we need to be encouraged to work as unto the Lord in our jobs and not as unto man. For the same reason we need to be encouraged not to have bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice, but instead to be kind and tenderhearted and forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. We need to be encouraged in these things because we're prone to wander. Wander right back into selfishness. Wander right back into stinginess. We're, we're, we're prone to wander. The power of sin is still at work. So generous giving needs encouragement so that we don't forget, so that we don't give up, 
so that we keep going. And Paul actually utilizes two different types of encouragement in this text. The first is the encouragement of an example, right? Paul puts flesh and bone on generous giving by pointing to the Macedonians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their needs. According to them and beyond them. Of their own accord. Begging us earnestly. You ever begged anyone that you could give to them? You ever begged to be able to give? Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So you see in there, it is their own unprompted generosity. It is motivated by, they gave themselves to the Lord first. And then the overflow of that was they gave themselves to us as well and this project. But look, look at what the grace of God did in this church, Paul says. Did you notice what he left out? He left out what percentage of their income they gave. He left out actually the amount altogether. Do you know where he focused? Did you see where he focused? He focused on the circumstance of their giving. That's where the power of their example was. Not in the amount that they gave, but in the circumstance of their giving. So he says, they were in extreme poverty, a test of affliction, and their joy just couldn't help but come out as generosity. That's what he says. And he's, could you just see how giddy Paul would be over something like that and he's elbowing the Corinthian church? Did you see, could you see that? Can you see that? He doesn't even know where his next meal's coming from and he gave his bread. Did you see that? That's amazing. Look at the grace of God in this church. Do you know what most people do when they're in a test of affliction and extreme poverty? They turn inward, don't they? Isn't that our natural tendency? Circle the wagons. Think about how I'm going to get through this. I would love to give, but I'm really in a tough spot right now. But not the Macedonians. Their extreme poverty was the Lord's canvas for a portrait of extreme generosity. And Paul says, look at that. Do you see that? Do you know who else did that? Jesus. In Luke chapter 21, he and his disciples are in the temple and they're close by to where the offering box is and a widow comes up. And there are people, just there are people, loaded people coming in, dropping all kinds of gifts. This woman comes up with two coins and she puts them in. And Jesus elbows his disciples. says, did you see that? That's the greatest giving I've seen all day. And this is what he says about her. Those other people, they contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. 
What is the example in Macedonia? What is the example in the widow? It is the example of faith. It is the example of trusting the Lord to provide all that is needed. That I do not believe I can outgive God. So this was meant to do something else in my mind. But I see that and I can't not do anything. I have to give. Don't those examples stir your heart? Don't those examples even convict you? Quite frankly, that's what they're meant to do. They're meant to move us into action, either by encouraging us to keep going or exhorting us to repent of not doing anything. The encouragement of an example, but also the encouragement of persuasive words. Now, Paul is not commanding, but he is seeking to persuade. Listen to how he does it. Verse 7 of chapter 8. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, or some translate it, in your love for us, see that you excel in this grace also. You've excelled in so many things, Christian. You have so much knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have such deep desires to please Him. You love people. Don't leave this behind, he says. Excel in this act of grace. Then in verse 10, And in this matter I give my judgment, which is another word for opinion. It's not like a judge with a verdict judgment. In this matter I give my opinion. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. In other words, your giving doesn't benefit me. Your giving benefits you. It benefits you. Don't start and then give up. If you remember, you may not remember, but you can glance later. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul is giving them instructions about this offering and saying, hey, take some at a time every week on the first day of the week uh, when you gather, and when I get there, we'll make sure it gets to Jerusalem. All right? So what he's saying now is, you started this act. You desired to do this act. Don't be so foolish as to give up on it. I mean, you remember what Ecclesiastes 5 says, right? It's better, it, it's better to m- not make a vow than to make a vow and not pay it. I mean, in part, that takes my mind immediately to the arena of prayer, doesn't it? How many times have we said, oh, I'll pray for you about that. Oh, I'll pray for you about that. Oh, I'll pray for you about that. And then that was literally the last time it entered our mind until we saw them. We thought, oh, now I said I was going to pray for them about something. But in the realm of giving, don't don't talk a big game here and not do it. And then later in chapter 9, verses 2 to 4, I know of your readiness, which is an eagerness. It's the same word as um, the earnestness of chapter 8. 
of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. In other words, you've been an example to other people. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, listen to this, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you. If you keep talking about giving, and that's as far as it goes, it is to your shame. We told them the way that you were going to be giving. You will put us to shame and yourselves to shame if you don't come through. Now, Paul is not being manipulative. He's trying to help them see the situation with sobriety. Excelling in the evidence of grace. The the Christian life is not a life merely of talking. It is a life of living. How many youth conferences have you been to or heard about where the whole theme was don't just talk the talk, walk the walk? That's essentially what Paul is saying to them. Don't talk as if you're St. Nicholas and give as if you're Ebenezer Scrooge. That's what he's saying. Don't. Don't do it. When we lived in Nashville, <laughs> a, uh, a visitor approached me after, it's always good, if this is your first time visiting, it's always good to visit the first time when someone's preaching on giving. This was, happened to be the case uh, for them, and he came to me afterwards, and he explained how he wanted to give. He desperately wanted to give, but he also had his electric bill to pay. What did I think he ought to do? Okay. Well, I started by telling him how Susan and I started out in life. Uh, We would write a budget, and you've heard the phrase, you know, trying to make ends meet. Our ends were in separate zip codes. I, I don't even think they talked on the phone. These ends were really far apart from one another, and we would write it down, and that was before we even talked about giving on paper. But we had determined in our hearts, we would always give. So we gave. And do you know, there was never a time we went without food or electricity or even times when the car would break. That's never in your budget. Not when you're 23. Oh yes, I have many, many dollars in savings. Uh, Said, not me at 23. All right. So, and then I asked him, I said, when it comes to giving, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust yourself to figure out a way that you can give? Or are you going to trust the Lord by giving and allowing Him to provide what you need? And then I finished this way. I'm not going to tell you to not give to the Lord instead of paying your bills. I'm not going to tell you to not give to the Lord in the name of paying your bills, I mean to say. The electric company, their authority only spans this life. 
It's up to you what you will do. I'm not going to tell you. It's probably needless to say he never came back to the church again. But what was I doing? I was just trying to persuade him to trust the Lord. To do what... I don't even think he would have been wrestling with it if he didn't know he ought to give. He was just trying to figure out ways in his mind to make it work. I wanted him to excel in the act of grace. So Paul uses the encouragement of an example, uses the encouragement of persuasive words. And we need both, don't we? We need both. I mean, think about people in your life. Who are the examples of generous givers in your life? Who is it that somehow in knowing how they gave to you or to someone else spurs you on? What are the ways that the Lord has spoken to your heart through His Word that have pressed you by persuasion to give? Maybe they came through a friend, a teacher, a pastor. Generous giving needs encouragement. Thirdly, generous giving proves genuine love. Paul says that, doesn't he? Now, we know this from 1 John. You remember 1 John chapter 3? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How can you say the love of God resides in you if you see one in need and do nothing? Do nothing. And Paul calls the Corinthians to give because it will prove their love. Look at chapter 8, verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Then he repeats it in in verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love. You say you love the churches. Prove it. There's nothing more frustrating than to talk with people in counseling where one of them is is completely and utterly just, just trap themselves in a web of adultery and lies, and then to look at me and say, but I still love him, but I really love her. Does anyone buy that? The culture does. Is that what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach that you can love me and treat me like complete garbage, that those two things go together? No. Paul's saying your giving will be proof of your love. It will be tangible evidence that your heart is with them. Where your money is, there your heart will be also. And the 
And so he says in verse 13 to 15, he says, I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness or equality, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. This is what their love should do, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now that last verse is a reference to the time when Israel's wandering in the wilderness, and they're gathering manna day by day. And large families always had enough. Small families always had enough. The Lord provided equally for all people. And so just as God provided equally for large families and small families through the daily collection of manna, we as Christians ought to be concerned for the provision of every one of God's people. That all need, that that, that, that banner could be lifted above here. There was not a needy person among them. Now, ultimately, though, this giving as the proof of love takes Paul's mind to the most obvious of examples, to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no, there's, he's not just using grace now because he's talking about Jesus. He's just said, excel in this act of grace. Excel in this act of grace, Corinthians. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus, don't you? That though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. To Jesus Himself, He takes our minds to Jesus. How did Jesus prove love? Romans 5, 8, right? God shows us His love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And Paul's saying that's what love looks like. Jesus, though He was rich in righteousness, though He was filled with the joys and the glories of heaven, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. He came. He took on our spiritual bankruptcy at the cross and paid that debt and credited us with his righteousness so that through his poverty we might become rich. God's love for the world proven in giving, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that what? He gave. John chapter 15, Jesus loved. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I've said it many times and hopefully many more to come, but there's one place that you and I can always look to find the evidence of God's love. And it is not in the circumstances of my life. It is always in the circumstance of Christ's death. You can look at your life one day and the next and be just completely thrown off about how to evaluate things. But when you look at the cross, all you can see is the love of God on display. All you can see 
is that no matter what it is in your life right now, no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the heartache is, no matter what work is like, no matter how the family seems to be going awry, no matter where things are, God's love is sure because Christ has died. And if you don't know the love of God in Jesus Christ, if you still think that somehow you've got treasure chests full of merit before God because of how good you are, dear friend, the only way to be embraced by the love of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is where the love of God will enfold you. Turn to Jesus. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ alone, and you will never be separated from the love of God in Christ again. Never. I have no better offer for you today than that. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Come to Jesus. I would love to talk to you about that. Any, if you're a visitor, any of our church members would love to talk to you about who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him. And Paul is saying, just as Jesus' love proves His giving, so, so does ours. So if that's the case, may I ask you a question? What does your giving say about you? What does your giving say? If giving speaks of our hearts, what does your giving say? Does it demonstrate a heart of generosity, imitating the generosity of Jesus? Or does it say something else? last thing, but it can't be overlooked, generous giving requires godly oversight. Now, generally speaking, we would know that to be true, right? If you've got generous givers in the room, what are you going to have at the end of that time of generous giving? A big old pile of money. That's what's going to be there. And if we don't handle it right, things are going to go terribly, terribly wrong. And Paul is very concerned here in verses 20 and 21. We take this course so that no one should blame us about the generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. It's quite possible that Paul had been accused of some shady dealings when it comes to finances. But whatever the case, he wants to make it clear with the Corinthians, we are way above board on this one. Don't fail to give because you think something's going to go wrong. Let me tell you who's going to be part of this. All right, let me summarize. You, go, you know the guy that travels around and everybody loves how he preaches and they're like multiple churches accrediting him and saying that this guy is the real deal. He is faithful. He is godly. He is a passionate preacher. He's committed to the Lord. You remember that guy? He's going to be with Titus, who you already loved and respected. And then there's another man who has extreme confidence in you. His heart beats for you. He loves you. And he's going to be in on making sure the money gets to the right place too. So honorable are these men. Did you notice what Paul calls them in verse 23? As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. 
That is how honorable these people are. He calls them the glory of Christ. In Acts 6, this is why the apostles wanted particular kinds of men to take care of distributing food to the widows. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Generous giving requires godly oversight because we will dishonor the Lord if we mishandle His money. And we can ruin our witness in the community if money is mishandled. Now, you don't have to go out of the city of Indianapolis or very far back in history to know of church, a church or churches that have struggled because of the mishandling of finances. And that stays with a congregation for a long, long time. It brings dishonor to the Lord and shame in the sight of men. The only thing that, should be, that people should think is shameful about us is that we're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and won't bend. We suffer shame for that. We ought not to suffer because we do shameful things. And I'll just tell you, we take here at Gray Road, we take financial gifts seriously. I thank God for those who count and deposit and distribute these funds faithfully, both the regular offering and the benevolence offering. I jotted down a few names. I don't know that I remembered them all, but if I didn't, I am sorry, but there are a lot of names. James Bannister, Willie Jones, Brian McKenzie, Steve Myers, Ron Nolting, Mike Shingleton, Ken Snyder, Gary Strange, Lyle Sir. I mean, all trustworthy men. And then you cannot leave out the woman who administrates our finances, Janine. They are all trustworthy folks. And Tammy Gannon is so trustworthy in the school finances. It is critical because when we give to the Lord, don't we want every penny to go to something purposeful? Go to do something that's going to do something. Well, all of these folks work together to make sure that that happens. And we ought to be thankful for them. Generous giving actually cannot accomplish what it might accomplish without faithful, godly people handling it. So, dear friends, giving, giving is a spiritual discipline. It's an act of grace one that God calls us to excel in, one that we need encouragement in, that we need to come back over and over because the rampant materialism of our day, the rampant love of money, all it is is a call of the devil to a different God. But the way of Christ is different. He gave His life. What more could He give? He has proven His love for you and for me and for all who follow Jesus, following Him in proving their love for God, in proving their love for others, in proving their love for the Lord Jesus Christ will be shown in part and significantly in how we give. God's people must be generous givers. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, how lost and hopeless we would be if you had not given your Son. We would be 